This is the Baywall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we explore the final three chapters of understanding the Jewish roots of Christianity, discussing the Jewish character of the church, and puzzling through what difference it makes to our lives as Christians. Yeah. You know, one of the things about uh, how we do things, Brent, is we always kind of record a few weeks ahead so that we have episode content in the hopper ready for you to produce and ready to go. What that means is, is that as we record this today, uh, we just kind of like released this week the episode a few episodes ago where we talked to Jen Rosner that kind of kicked off this series about this book that we're going through. Um, and and because of that, we got like feedback. And I wanted to just add some comments because I thought this feedback was particularly interesting and I wanted to give comment to it because some of it's really important. Um and I always find it so interesting, like which episodes people gravitate towards, like which episodes generate such uh, different kind of feedback, and and the comments go crazy, and people write emails, and and it's always so interesting to see. I I, I would never anticipate uh, which episodes produce that kind of stuff, but that that episode with Jen, uh, let's see what what number of episode would that have been, Brent? Uh, that was two thirty four. Two thirty four episode two thirty four with Jen Rosner, and um. And yeah, and so uh, if I were to put it on like a diagram, it would be quadrants. There were people that that heard what we were trying to say and loved it. And and to that group, I say that that's awesome. Thank you. I was I was really actually kind of surprised by how much positive like people were like, and I love that episode. That was so great. Um, I hope this series has been helpful. I know it's been kind of weird. Like it's probably for a lot of people, the last few episodes probably aren't your favorite episodes. It's like Marty reading excerpts out of a book. Like, it's kind of weird. I won't make a habit out of doing that. I'm hoping that for some of you, maybe it's been like, yeah, I've loved that. No, I, I want to get that book. It's really helpful to hear. Um, and then and then there were some that, like, understood what we were saying and didn't love it um, because they wanted to, like, okay, but uh, you, didn't, you didn't tell us anything. Um, and to that, I would just say, yes. So when we do these guest interviews um, – Part of what we're doing is we're trying to share resources with you and and then help out uh, fellow friends, usually authors, who have written a book. So if I tell you all the content of the book, um, then then I kind of ruin it for the person who's trying to make a living <laughs> by, by writing books. Well, even even so, like we're not recording an audiobook, so it's not the whole thing either way. Right. And so if we summarize it and give you all the key points, like maybe we're not even pulling the key points that you would take away from the book. So it's not even sure. Yeah. It's not even just like, oh, we're trying to protect the the money that the author gets, which is honestly probably not as much as you would think it is. And the whole publishing industry is complicated like that. So Yeah, um, especially the people that caref- we're talking careful to with your assumptions. Yeah. But um yeah, like it's it's not even it's not even that. It's like we want people to engage the material because we think it's valuable. But just as we talked about with, we can't predict which episodes are going to um, resonate with people in what ways we're not going to predict what part of a book is going to resonate with you. We just think that the book as a whole is valuable. So we want to share some ideas, give you an idea of what, what is in it, but we really want you to engage with it. Not that you're required by any means, right? but, but that is the hope is, is, something will intrigue you and you'll engage with it yourself. Yeah. This whole podcast is about teaching us how to think, uh, how to ask better questions 
and pointing you towards resources. And when you find a resource, when you hear about one that you're like, oh, I want more of that. Well, then there you go. And that's what we want to do. We want to connect because we're not the experts. <laughs> uh, I am not the expert. I love to read the experts and I love to talk about the experts. Um, and I love, to, I love to talk about what I've learned from the experts, but I, I'm not the expert, nor is, nor is Brent, uh, at least not about this content. And, uh, and there you go. And then there was a whole other group of people. Uh, th- those are two quadrants. And then there's two other quadrants, Brent. There are people who um, did not understand what we were doing and loved it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a, very, a very dominant uh, response was to that episode, for some reason, was a whole bunch of people going, oh, great. Marty now loves Messianic Judaism which was n- not necessarily what I was trying to communicate. A, it wasn't like I ever – I've been frustrated by many aspects of the Messianic Judaism that I have encountered. What I was trying to communicate through that episode was that I, I am learning that the, the world of Messianic Judaism is much bigger than I thought it was. I had, I had put it in a box. I had stereotyped – let me be very clear. The same things that frustrated me before continue to frustrate me I just now understand where some of those things are coming from, and I also understand that there's part of that world that I had not met before, and that part um, is is really blessing me, and and I'm learning from it. That's what I was trying to communicate. Not that I have like radically changed my position on some of those other issues that I've given that I've given word to, but that I'm learning that there's other things that I don't know. And Brent, that was important. Because part of what I want to do on this podcast is model – I, I want to model that. I want to model as somebody who has a voice, whatever you want to call it, a platform, whatever, a podcast, and and influence somebody – I'm able to say like, man, I didn't know that. I learned something new, and thank you for teaching me. So that part of that was done not as performance art, but very intentionally so that people um, – could see that and and we don't see that in our leaders enough and so part of it is trying to model that did i say that well brent yeah i think so okay and then there's a fourth quadrant who didn't understand what we were saying and didn't like it <laughs> and uh but but actually um that's not on them by the way both of these quadrants who didn't understand what we were saying is not on them it's mostly on me uh probably completely on me to be honest uh that is not on the listener um but that last quadrant actually said some things that are very, very important to me. Um, some of the voices that spoke, emailed, uh, might have been on Slack, personal messages. Um, I got to hear from a few different voices, a handful of different voices that said, man, that kind of felt like it was just about you, Marty. Like it was just you and Jen and you and Jen as Jews and we're we're not Jews. So we just have to like kind of watch you from a distance and we don't really get to be Jews, and you're really clear about that. But we like that was really weird. It was just about you and your story and what you thought. And I feel like it was it was just very you centric. Um, I did not intend that. So uh, that was I can I can absolutely see how that episode uh, was heard that way. And I want to uh, affirm that and and just say I'm sorry because I, I honestly legitimately did not intend to communicate that at all. I, I did want to model some things intentionally. I want to share my life with others. I do want to be in relationship as a Jewish follower of Jesus. I want to be in relationship with evangelicals, Gentile evangelicals. 
And I want that relationship. We're going to actually talk about that in today's episode with this book, Brent. Um, there's something to that relationship that I want to be very open and very intentional. And, and I want to, I want to be able to engage that. Um, and, and by the way, I have tried to be super clear about like the dangers of Gentile appropriation. Um, and I'm, I may have overdone it on some level. Uh, so if I backtrack for just a moment here to say, I absolutely 100% believe that Gentiles, you're not just watching a story that you don't get to engage in. You're, you're supposed to be totally engaged and learning from the story. You're just not supposed to be under that covenant. And man, we're going to talk about some of this stuff, aren't we, today, Brent? Yeah? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we, should, we should probably just move on to the episode. But please don't hear me say, like, there's a Jewish thing going on over here, and you don't get to be a part of it, and you just need to, like, watch from a distance. No. The, the whole story, like, if that were true, this whole podcast would be a colossal waste of our time. The whole point is to learn from that Jewish story, to learn from the Jewish narrative, to learn from the Jewish people, to learn from their traditions and how they see it and their perspective. And the whole point is to be fully engaged and learn so that we truly know how to engage it in our world, Jew or Gentile. But rather than keep talking, we should probably uh, dive in because really, that's exactly what our conversation today is going to be about. So unless you have something to add, Brent, how about you? Well, uh, I just, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I want, I want to clarify one thing because you, um, I, th- I think the, the struggle is whether or not we speak for our listeners, um, Ooh. when we are recording episodes. Oh, so as good. we're having conversations with people, we don't want to assume that all of our listeners, just because they've listened to the whole podcast or whatever, have all of the same views as us. And so we want to approach conversations and topics and subjects as as someone realizing like, oh, we have our own individual opinions and we're going to approach something with those opinions, but we're not going to assume that everyone else holds those same opinions. Oh goodness, yes. So we're not we're not obligating anyone to feel the same way that we do or have the same convictions that we do or whatever. So in, in, I think maybe in doing that, it's made it seem like, oh, this is just us and nobody else gets to come along, but that's not what we're trying to do. No. And that's a great, I really appreciate you saying that Brent. Uh, Cause I, yeah, I have my experiences and I have my opinions and things that I want to point out and, and point to, but I don't get to make the call. Like, I, I'm just like any of you listening. Like, I, I don't get to make the call on Messianic Judaism. Like, there have to be. I know there are a ton of listeners that disagree with me on those points. I would expect that. I would want that. I would encourage that. Please do. And, uh, man, Brent, um, I've been, I, I know we've been, we've been listening to the, uh, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. And if there's anything to learn from that, it's that we are not trying to create some monolithic group and and some monolithic platform and some monolithic personality. Uh, golly, the moment we do that, we get into some dangerous waters. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I'm going to link that whole podcast in our show notes. Yeah. If you have not listened to that, check it out. Yeah, yeah, and and it's it's yeah, and uh, yeah. There's all kinds of things. Maybe we can do an episode kind of on that because. Um, 
We're not saying check it out and be entertained by it. Uh, we're saying check it out because there's some really provocative things we need to be thinking about. We're not saying there's not nuances. Again, there are people even on the Baymod teaching team that see that podcast radically differently. So, um, but but to be thinking and to be learning from things that we've seen, and we we're, we we need to be we need to be held accountable to a larger group of people. This is not just the Brent and Marty show. There 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 have been a couple episodes in that podcast where I have seen so clearly some of my own church history and background and thought oh no yeah <laughs> like when when my church talked about that they said it in in this like positive yep like oh this is how we want to do things and this is the best way to do it and it's like oh no it turns out that just because you're doing it that way doesn't mean it's yeah the right way like you can still corrupt it if you don't have the right systems of accountability in place yep. so yeah it's uh yeah it's not it's not a recommendation for an entertainment podcast it is a recommendation to um reflect on on what kind of what kind of structures we have around us and and whether or not we're actually pointing to Jesus or not amen and amen all right, chapter 11. Oh, man, this this episode. Chapter 11. <laughs> We've got to get into it. <laughs> Here we go. Get us into it, Brent. All right, this is uh, titled Messianic Judaism, Recovering the Jewish Character of the Ecclesia. This is by Mark S. Kinzer. Uh, he is the moderator of Yahad Bet Yeshua, a global fellowship of Jewish disciples of Jesus. And he's the president emeritus of the Messianic Jewish Theological Institute, and if you remember uh, Jen's episode, uh, he came up um, because he uh, has been an influential voice in some of the things that she's been thinking through and working out. So, um, yeah, Mark Kinzer. Mark Kinzer. I'm just going to dive in and start quoting some stuff uh, right off the bat. First paragraph. Um, the, this present volume reflects the intense interest felt by many today in the Jewish roots of their Christian faith. It demonstrates the perennial appeal of studies that aim to shine light on the ecclesia in its earliest phases. But the current interest is novel in focus. For in previous centuries, most Christians thought of Judaism as a legalistic and arid religion that paled by comparison with Christianity. Many Christians now admire Judaism and are eager to trace their own tradition back to such a respected source. Uh, here's just a few abs. I'm just pulling out some quotes like from middle, like the middle of paragraphs here, but I, I like these quotes. Listen to this. Um, the recovery of Jewish roots offers the promise of recovering the ecclesia's Jewish character. That's going to be an idea he uses all throughout this chapter is the idea of the ecclesia, the church's Jewish character. Um, another quote, my concern in the present essay is the recovery of the Jewish character of the ecclesia in the present and future. To be Jewish, the ecclesia, the church, needs... I love this quote. Okay, I'm going to read this. To be Jewish, the ecclesia needs Jews, and it needs them to live in a way that accentuates rather than hides their identity as Jews. So again, um, for like some of those people that said, oh, I feel like I'm on the outside. No, no, no. What I'm trying to do is fulfill this thing that I'm probably doing it very poorly, all right? I'll qualify that. I'm probably not doing it well. But I want to be kind of a fulfillment of what Mark is talking about here. To be Jewish, the ecclesia needs Jews. 
and it needs them to live in a way that accentuates rather than hides their identity as Jews. Here, a little bit later, he says, here there is attention given to historical roots, but the roots in question are those that produced enmity and separation rather than those that yielded a hidden continuity. It's kind of speaking of like what we've experienced in the past and how it probably needs to change in the future. Uh, Next section, he starts off by saying this, for Christians who esteem the Jewish tradition, it is self-evident that at a certain point or points in their history, the ecclesia took a wrong turn. Her proper consciousness of her own election expanded to include an improper judgment concerning genealogical Israel's rejection. But this wrong turn can be understood in two different ways. The first accepts the separation of the two communities as necessary, providential, and irreversible historical development. Many of the attitudes and behaviors that accompanied this differentiation were sinful, but the differentiation itself was divinely ordained. Such a perspective on the separation is commonly held by Christians engaged in Jewish-Christian dialogue since it poses no threat to the current identities of that each of each dialogue partner. So the first view is that, listen, Jews and Christians separated, they were severed, there was a schism, but that schism, and, and there was sin involved, but that schism was ultimately ordained and designed by God and necessary for the people of God to move forward. Um, that's that's one view. And Brent, how about you read us that next quote there from Philip Cunningham? Um, it sets up this, you can see this view at work. Yeah, this is a, a Catholic um, thinker. I think most Christians and Jews unthinkingly assume that something went wrong with the parting of the ways, the origins of Christianity and rabbinic Judaism as separate communities. This separation is thought to have been contrary to God's will. I suggest an alternative presupposition to something went wrong in retelling the Christian story today. Why can we not suppose that the origins of our two traditions unfolded according to God's will? Right. Yeah. And that, again, that's a great quote to demonstrate the first take. This is kind of your first option. Here's here's Kenzer. Kenzer says, the main problem with this construal is uh, Christological. It suggests that Jesus has no significance for the Jewish people apart from the creation of a new Gentile assembly rooted in Israel's story. Jesus may still have significance for individual Jews who accept his claims, but they then become a part of a Gentile assembly and so presumably leave their Jewish identity behind. The Jewish people, on the other hand, continue on as they did before, untouched by their corporate life by the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. This is a strange way of construing a message concerning one who died with the words, King of the Jews inscribed above his head, and whose name became forever linked to Israel's royal title, Christos Mashiach. But this Christological problem also has ecclesiological consequences. If the story of Jesus has no significance for the Jewish people as a people, then the resurrected Jesus has no particular point of ongoing contact with his own kin beyond what he has with all human beings, and so also has no point of contact to offer the Gentile assembly gathered in his name. All right, so that's one take. That's the first take, and Kinzer's kind of uh, critique of that take. Then he goes on to say this, the second approach is the wrong uh, to the wrong turn challenges the necessity of the separation itself. Christians who take this approach view the parting as a tragic schism rather than a providential differentiation. 
Uh, do you want to read the, he quotes another source here. Uh, Brent, do you want to read the Yoder quote that's in there? Yeah. The historical development of the first three centuries of our era ended with the presence in many of the same places of two separate, mutually exclusive systems, intellectual, cultural, and social, called Jews and Christians. Therefore, the standard account claims that this mutual exclusiveness must be assumed to have been inevitable, that is, logically imperative, even when and where the actors in the story which led to that outcome did not know that yet. Yeah, quoting Kinzer, uh, Yoder then challenges this assumption. If God's purpose might have been to offer a different future from the one which actually came to be, then we do not do total justice to God's intent in the story by reading it as if the outcome he did not want, but which did happen, had to happen. Um, so, so Yoder's saying, uh, well, let me see. I think, I think actually Kenzer's going to say it quite well here. Uh, as articulated by Cunningham, the first perspective on the split accepts the Gentile character of the ecclesia, while nevertheless asserting that she is rooted in Israel's story. The ecclesia thus has a relationship to Israel uh, through a, per- a partially shared narrative, but she does not reside in the midst of Israel, nor does Israel reside in her midst. The second perspective, on the other hand, presumes that such a mutual indwelling was divinely willed and only rebellious human actions severed the visible bond. It is the second way of defining the wrong term of the ecclesia that befits Christians seeking not only a better relationship with Jesus, but also the recovery of the Jewish character of their own faith and life. And Brent, I think we would definitely represent of the two, which one of the two, the first or the second? I think I think the latter. And I would <laughs> like to emphasize um, severing the visible bond because regardless of what you think, there there are Jewish roots to Christianity. So whether you want to bring those out in the open and acknowledge them or not, they are there. So the severing was of the visible bond where you where you try to hide it and not acknowledge it, but that but that bond is still there. Right. Yes. And 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 to summarize, take number one says the schism was God's plan and needs to be there. Part two was the schism was not a part of God's plan and was a result of our own brokenness and humanity. We take uh, very clearly in session five, we depict it as a, a, a horrible tragedy. Um, take number two. Kinzer goes on. Here's a few random quotes here. In this essay, I'm focusing on the character of the ecclesia and her role in the Jewish Christian schism. A little bit later, he says, Jewish corporate identity in the early centuries of the common era was founded on the conviction that genealogical Israel was beloved, chosen, and set apart by the creator of the universe for a particular priestly task in the world. So he says, in the first century, Jewish identity found its identity in the fact that there was a mission that they were a part of to bring, uh, to partner with God as a kingdom of priests in the world. The heart of, a, a little bit later, he says, the heart of ecclesial identity, so church identity from her earliest days, was the conviction that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel and the Lord of the universe. Later, he says, Jewish and ecclesial core affirmations did not inevitably morph into mutual boundary-setting negations. Our ancestors were responsible agents, and their corporate decisions resulted in the partitioning of Judeo-Christianity. We must live with the historical consequences of those decisions, but we are not doomed to sanctify their choices or repeat their mistakes. 
We are responsible agents, and our responsibility includes the obligation to assess their actions in light of the possibilities that have opened up in our own day. No get-out-of-jail-free cards here. Nope, absolutely not. Um, uh, one, one more little trip here, and then we'll summarize kind of the rest of the chapter, Brent. Um, next section, Kinzer says, the denial of each other's core affirmations resulted eventually in mutually exclusive communal identities. The Gentile assembly of Christians could now uh, relate to the Jewish people only as a reality alien to its own corporate self. But what about those who embraced both core affirmations and did so as genealogical descendants of the patriarchs and matriarchs? The imagery of separation, rupture, or schism suggests two parties that once shared a common social space and then at some point or points ceased to do so. A little bit later, he says the Jesus Gentiles had been initiated into a Jewish social and cultural environment that demanded that they renounce worship of their ancestral gods. They had joined a community centered in Jerusalem and led by Jews, but these Gentiles did not thereby, thereby become Jews. A little bit later, when the signs of acute stress surfaced in the second century, three corporate characters appeared in the drama. Not just two, he says, three, rather than merely two. Number one, you had the wider Jewish community. Number two, you had the Jewish members of the ecclesia. And number three, you had the emerging Gentile Christian church. And so what Kinzer will do is he's going to spend uh, the next kind of sections of um, his chapter essentially talking about how does this three um, – how to, if there's not just two groups with one schism, but actually three groups, does this third group that he's referring to as Messianic Judaism kind of allow – open a door to that healing of the schism that Jen Rosner writes about? It is Messianic Judaism play a part in this larger scheme of things? Things, And so he goes through and he just kind of talks about that. He talks about what's happening in Judaism. He talks about what's happening in Christianity, particularly what happened in Catholic thought um, recently in the last, you know, recent history. Yeah, the, the quote we read from the Catholic guy previously uh, does not represent what we're going to see later no. from some other Catholic thinkers. Thank you for saying that. I wanted to say that earlier and I forgot to work that in. So, yes. Uh Actually, Catholicism has actually helped pave the way for a lot of these renewed Jewish-Christian dialogue, and we're very much indebted to the Catholic Church for some of the things that they've done for that. Um, Closing little bit here from Mark and his chapter. The Ecclesia now has the opportunity to rediscover her Jewish roots and to recapture her Jewish character. In so doing, she may experience an unanticipated fruit in spheres that seem distant from the matter at hand. More is at stake than meets the natural eye. Something extraordinary has occurred in recent centuries among Jews who believe in Jesus. Through them, an exit ramp may lead off the highway of schism with signs pointing back to the road not taken long ago. May all members of the Ecclesia be blessed with eyes to see, ears to hear, and hands to turn the wheel. Amen to that. Next chapter, Brent. Well, before we go on, I just want to maybe like bring out a practical example of this. So the idea that he's talking about is the, uh, is the, the Jewish roots and Jewish character of the church. Um, and it's talking about it in a sense of like, we're all supposed to be in this one common community. And so one of the things that, um, comes up 
is the idea of cultural appropriation. And so what I feel like I'm, I'm hearing from this chapter is that the, the, there should be a Jewish character to the church. There should be Jews in the church and that we should be having a, a common experience. So for me as a Gentile to participate in a Seder meal would be appropriate and probably encouraged, although not required. But for me as a Gentile to take a whole group of other Gentiles without any Jewish presence and create our own Seder meal, that would be appropriation. And and that's that's the negative sense is if I if I take away the root and I take away, you know, the source of the tradition, then I am I'm appropriating it versus participating in it in the sense that the root is there, the Jews are in my community, and I am participating in the experience with them. Yes, and that's a really good distinction. And there will be other people that see it differently. This is the nuance uh, of the conversation about appropriation and Jewish and Gentile identity in Yeshua, in Jesus. Um, But yes, uh, the ideal, I would say God's design, take number two, there was a design that we screwed up. But the design was that the Gentiles, no matter how big of a community they were, they would have been invited into a Jewish context. It was a Jewish body, a Jewish tree. Everything about it was a Jewish movement, and they were being invited in, and their presence was completely immersive. So they would have been in a community that had a Seder meal. They would have been in a community that practiced Sukkot. They would have been in a community that was Jewish and did all these Jewish things of which they were included without eating kosher, without being under covenant, but yet they would have been in a community that led God's people in that way. And from that, they would have learned, experienced. Now we live in this severed community, completely severed from the two. And so what some people have done is they said, well, without healing that schism, I want to just do the Jewish thing. I think that's dangerous. Some groups have said, well, rather than healing the schism, we're just going to become Jewish. I'm going to start eating kosher. I'm going to start doing But I think we tried to lay out that's very not what the New Testament invites us to do. And Paul says, I believe this screws up the gospel. So what we have is a world where we're not not living in the ideal, where this Gentile faith is immersed in a Jewish context. And what do you do with that schism and that divide? And that's not easy to answer at all, as we're going to see multiple authors say here today. But you have articulated that absolutely correctly, Brent. There is something different than having a community that has a Passover meal that has invited Gentiles to partake, than a group of Gentiles with no Jewish presence saying they're going to have a Passover meal on their own and it's their Passover meal. I still think, listen, I still think there's a way to do that. A group of Gentiles to engage the Seder meal from an educational very intentionally educational uh, perspective. I think there's room for that. It's going to be hard not to offend our Jewish brothers and sisters, which should matter to us. Do not consider yourself, but consider others more important than yourself. Lay yourself like this matters. If our Jewish brothers and sisters are telling us that's so offensive, there's got to be a way to do that well. But there is something, there is something totally different when a group of Gentiles says, this is my identity. This is my story. 
that's not quite what we've been seeing, studying, and encountering, and that's something different, I think. That's my opinion for all of you out there listening, and you're like, well, I, I'm, I'm offended by that. You do not have to embrace that. That is me saying, this is how I have come to wrestle with some of these nuances, because I've heard too many Jewish friends say, I'm not okay with the way Christians are posturing themselves and relating to Judaism. It's not right. And I want to hear that and wrestle with that. And I think part of my recoil is um, from my upbringing and being taught the idea of America as a melting pot. Yeah. And so so in my mind, I'm like, what do you mean appropriation? Like, isn't isn't everything appropriation? Isn't everything we do like from somewhere else? And aren't, aren't we supposed to take ideas from everywhere and mix them up and create something new? So I, I think that's my like, instinctual reflex when I when I hear someone speak against cultural appropriation. But I think what what's lacking in many cases is that respect for others, considering others before yourself. I think that's the part like if you have that, and can engage in that respect, then when you when you have a community of people, and they bring different ideas together and create something new out of it, or even or even just engage in something that has been a tradition for thousands of years. Uh, it, it's just it's just a whole different thing when you have that element of respect, which was not part of the original teaching. So I don't know. Yep. Uh, no, I hundred ten percent. It's great. I I do get the impression in many cases that my my ideas of history and um, whatever as I, as I was growing up somehow doesn't line up with a lot of other people. So I don't, I don't really know how I got away with some of the ideas that I have because, um, yeah, a lot of people seem to have been taught something different than me. So, uh, we don't have time to get into all of that. So let's just go to (laughs) chapter 12. Chapter 12. So we have Christian churches. What difference does the Jewishness of Jesus make by Archbishop Foley Beach? And he is the Archbishop of the Anglican Church in North America, Bishop of the Diocese of the South in the Anglican Church in North America, and General Secretary of the Global Anglican Fellowship Conference, whose churches contain 80% of the world's 85 million Anglicans. So, yeah, I've learned a lot about Anglicanism as I've read this book, actually, and uh, we didn't cover, I think, the chapter that spoke most directly to it, but... yeah. Um, yeah, the, the Anglican community is, is a big part of this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And for anybody interested, there's a whole chapter we didn't cover and get the book and read it and read that part of the chapter. Um, yeah, I'm going to jump into some things that Archbishop Foley says here. Uh, was Jesus really Jewish? No doubt. He was not only Jewish, but his whole frame of reference was Jewish, which means he often, he always looked, excuse me, not often. He always looked at his life and God through a Jewish lens. He said he came to fulfill Mosaic Jewish law, that his disciples were to keep and teach even the least of its commandments. When asked by somebody how to inherit eternal life, he asked, what does the Jewish law say? Uh, When the Pharisees asked him about divorce, he turned to what Moses commanded. He suggested that his earthly ministry was less for the Gentiles and more for the lost Jewish sheep of Israel. When he challenged his contemporaries' interpretations uh, of Jewish law, he did not reject the law, but offered new ways to interpret the law. Never did he suggest that he was turning away from Judaism. Instead, he said he came to proclaim the fulfillment of Judaism in himself and his church. Uh, He's going to go on to kind of talk about 
uh, the deity of Jesus, and then and then the section ends with this: What about his humanity? What kind of humanity was it? Uh, writings of the New Testament present Jesus with a Jewish humanity. Let's briefly examine this. So he has a whole section on Jesus was born in the midst of Judaism, so his context was Jewish. Jesus was raised in a Jewish family that practiced their faith. They were observant. They practiced. Um, there's a whole section uh, on Jesus lived the lifestyle of a religious Jewish man. So he had Jewish observance. He was Torah observant. We can see that clearly in the text. A lot of those little details in the text that I think um, uh, I, I've, at least me growing up, I've had a tendency to read over as just like, oh, whatever. Like, that's not really the meat of what he's saying. Like, that's not the truth behind what he's talking about. But all of those details, like, if you pay attention to them, you see like, yeah, totally. Absolutely. And it does matter. And so he ends this chapter with a a really thorough and long section talking about the implications. What are the implications for modern day followers of Jesus? And there's going to be six of them, Brent. I'm going to list them here. And if you have anything to add, you feel free. Number one, because Jesus was Jewish, there should be no anti-Semitism among followers of Jesus. It would seem like a incongruent one of those things that you know i grew up thinking like yeah of course but apparently a lot of christian (laughs) traditions have not like i seriously do not understand like it it just i i can't wrap my mind around anti-semitism at all and yet it is so prevalent in christian circles so yep sadly so number two Because Jesus was Jewish, modern followers of Jesus should desire to understand the Hebrew roots of their faith. If that's who our Lord was, we need to understand those roots. That's what Bema is all about. Like, literally, that's what it's... Well, I don't know if it's what it's all about, but it's definitely a big part of what it's about. Number three, because Jesus was Jewish, followers of Jesus should value the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, or I would say the Hebrew Scriptures, and the Tanakh. We definitely get that wrong, don't we, Brent? Uh, yeah, didn't didn't value that at all. Yeah, not not so much we as in Bema or whatever, but just Christian Christendom in general has let the Tanakh slip into a different category, and it needs to redeem that. Uh, number four, because Jesus was Jewish, modern followers of Jesus should seek to understand his teachings in light of his Hebrew background. So we need to understand that when Jesus teaches a parable, when he teaches, you know, anything that Jesus taught, any words that came out of his mouth, any, the life that he lived and the ministry that he had, it comes through a Hebrew Jewish filter. And we need to understand that so that we can understand what those teachings are and interpret his life and his teachings and his words correctly, accurately. Yeah. And and maybe this was my lack of interest in history, but I I did not grow up with the idea of the importance of cultural context in any historical setting, um, let alone in a biblical setting. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Number five, because Jesus was Jewish, we should seek to share Jesus with our Jewish friends. That's probably the one I struggle with the most in this list, Brent, just because of how poorly it's been done. Yeah, (laughs) sure. Typically, uh, it's been shared at the end of the tip of a sword, and that yeah. is not the right approach. Let's just say that. Well, and even in yeah, and even in the modern era, with the rise of e- the even the evangelism of evangelicalism and our like intellectual 
at like, no, no, you have to understand that Jesus is your Messiah and this is the truth. And we're, ugh, 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 ugh. So I affirm number five, but it's the, it's the hardest one to execute and apply well in my perspective. Last one, number six, because Jesus was Jewish, we followers of Jesus owe a great debt to the Jewish people. Which, uh, as somebody who wrote me an email recently said, it's kind of weird, Marty, when you say that. And I, I, I'll recognize that. So I'm not going to harp on that. I'm going to share well, as... Uh, yeah, go ahead. I will extend that to basically uh, every tradition. Like, when we, when we think our way is the only way, um, we, we miss so many things. Like, yes, it, at at the base level, we owe a great debt to the Jewish people. But in more recent times... Uh, in light of this conversation, in in light of what we've gone through in this book, we owe a great debt to um, the Catholics who have who have moved this conversation forward. We owe a great debt to the Anglicans. We owe a great debt to um, various uh, German and Swiss um, scholars who who started to think about things in a different way. Like there's there's so much more. Like we we didn't just show up here. Uh, randomly like we we had to get here somehow and so when we when we know where our beliefs come from and how the conversation has evolved over the centuries uh, we owe a great debt to a lot of people and so it's it's good to recognize that yeah yeah down at that fundamental level like the jewish people brought us jesus himself yeah right in a very in a very literal sense And, and i and i think of paul's words to the galatians like as he's trying to convince this group of of Gentile converts that want to, or they're wanting to become Jewish because life would just be so much easier, and he's saying you you can't do that. And yet, in the midst of that conversation, he says, "Listen, Judaism and Torah got us here." And and I think the implication of what Paul says, I'll let you all wrestle with that back in session four. But I think the implication of what Paul is saying is we 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 could not have gotten to Jesus without kind of going through the. Uh, the the Judaism that lies before it. It's a part of the narrative. It's a part of the story. You just can't go from the Garden of Eden to Jesus, at least not in the story that God's telling as he chose to tell it. You have to kind of go through. And so we do this this new Gentile awakening in Christ, this Gentile inclusion in Christ stands on the shoulders of a Judaism that for centuries and centuries and centuries ate kosher. Um they they wore a particular kind of clothing. They engaged in a particular kind of, you know, social structure. They all those things. They they were circumcised. They they carried. Uh, uh, they engaged in secular idolatry. And they they bore the burden and the heat of the day. To use a quote from Jesus's parable. Um, and so yeah, I, I think that fits very uh, very closely with what Paul is trying to stress in his own teaching. Um, uh, in, in the book of Galatians. So nevertheless, I digress. I think we're ready for chapter 13, Brent. So last chapter, we have Christian theology. What difference does this make? By Gerald R. McDermott, the editor of this entire volume. Uh, by the way, I don't know if we've mentioned his name as much uh, in the last couple of episodes, but he uh, was the Anglican chair of divinity at Beeson Divinity School taught in the areas of history and doctrine, world religions, Anglican studies, and Jonathan Edwards, uh, but he retired in 2020. And uh, he has got all kinds of books. And this 
being the most recent, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was a great way to close the, the whole read. Um, I just really appreciated how he kind of closed it and wrapped it up and added some additional thoughts and put a cherry on top and bada boom, bada bing. But uh, let's see here. What difference does it make that Jesus and all the apostles and the New Testament itself was thoroughly Jewish? Much in every way. A little bit later, he says, I would add that Jesus came to bring the Jewish religion to a new stage and that now its Messiah had finally arrived and his understanding of the law brought what some rabbis taught the Messiah would bring, the Messiah's Torah or the law of Christ. As most translations uh, render Paul's words in Galatians 6 verse 2 and 1 Corinthians 9 verse 21, that's juicy, huh? I never read really. I need to look more into that, Brent. I haven't necessarily encountered that up until now. Yeah, yeah. Love those translation things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a little bit later, a quote. He says, the other tenants to whom the... He's talking about the vineyard, um, the parable of the vineyard. Um, the uh, when, when Jesus says that he's going to lease the vineyard, God's going to lease the vineyard out to other tenants. The other tenants to whom the vineyard would be let must likely represent the new Messianic Jewish leadership, the apostles, with whom Jesus intends to reconstitute the 12 tribes. I'm trying to think if that's how I have interpreted that. I'm not sure that's how I interpret that, Gerald, but that's okay. I like that. Got something to think about. There you go. Maybe we can go back and listen to that episode, Brent, and figure out if that's i mean it's close to what we what we posited in our episode i don't know and i do think we have made a connection between the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles so yeah, yeah yeah there we go we did it just there's some round there's some way. elements in there all right, all right i'll go with it let's see here christians such as anglicans and catholics who refer to their clergy as priests should note that what they call priestly ministry is in continuity with not fundamentally at odds with the ministry of Hebrew priests because they participate in the new high priestly ministry of the true priest who remains a Jew. I like that. That was a good way to word that. Good job, Gerald. Let's see here. A little bit later, he uh, he talks about Ken. Uh, he's saying that uh, he liked Kenzer's admonitions that that Christians need to affirm not merely the Jewish roots but the Jewish character of the gospel. Paul says that the church consists of branches on a tree supported by Jewish roots, not a separate tree growing from different seeds. I'll read that again. Uh, they should heed Kinzer's admonition that Christians need to affirm not merely the Jewish roots, but the Jewish character of the gospel. Paul says the church consists of branches on a tree supported by Jewish roots, not a separate tree growing from different seeds. It's a great way of phrasing that. Uh, Gerald Little later says, I want to go further and suggest that this book should make us reconsider four words that are at the heart of our Christian faith. So he's going to start to work towards a closing here by suggesting four words we need to reconsider, Brent. The first word is the word Christ. He says we should reconsider Christ. Now, he's saying that in terms of what it means that Jesus is a Jewish Messiah, not just an abstract Messiah, but the Messiah of Israel. I would add to that personally, this is Marty speaking, I would add to that a, a, a re-examination of the Pauline usage. When Paul uses the term Christ, how does he use it? I, I am in agreement with Richard Rohr that I think Paul is using that 
term Christ in a much more expansive way. So I affirm both. I think both of those things need to be uh, reconsidered because I think they're both very relevant to the conversation. Second word, the word Jews, especially the way we read it in the Gospel of John in church, especially in John. There's a huge conversation about that. Um, and there's a lot of articles about the word. The word is udoi. Uh, I can't remember if that's Greek or if I'm saying that. That's the word that's stuck in my head and I can't remember. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that's the Greek. Udoi. Udoi is the word for Jews. But it usually references, not all the time, which makes it very tricky, but it often references, and the, the scholarly debate is how much uh, it's referencing Judean uh Judean Jews, like a Judean worldview, not just Jews. So whenever you're reading the Gospel of John, he's always like, and the Jews came out and did this. Well, you can't just translate it as Jews because then it's not consistent with the other things that John says in his Gospel. So John has to be using that term in some kind of specific way, and we need to consider that when we're reading our Bible. Um, <laughs> Brent, you've been, you've been with me in, in Israel whenever uh, that word comes up and I throw my hat and I shriek because I hate how we have, that's our anti-Semitism coming through in our translation. Yep. And this is actually a fairly lengthy section. Like he's listing these four words and the first, the first word is a pretty simple, uh, it's just like a single paragraph, but then, but then the second word, he actually goes through quite a bit of the text and examples and stuff. So, um, I would say read that, but also, we may get back to it in the somewhat near future. Ooh, snap. All right, I love it. Wet in the appetite. Uh, let's see here. After Christ and Jews, there's another word we use in translation in worship we should consider. That's the word law. He says we need to reconsider what the word law means, and he goes on to talk about that with some length. And then finally, uh, he says this, then... Uh, there is what, according to scholars of the last few centuries, was at the center of Jesus's gospel message, kingdom, kingdom. And he says we need to re-examine what the word kingdom means, and he has some comments on that. And boy, I, f I really hope that uh, we have a better idea of what that might mean as Baymont listeners. Uh, yeah, I would I would certainly hope for hope so, especially with our you know conversation about narrative and. Uh, what gospel, uh, excuse me, what gospel narrative and that genre is. Um, in those comments talking about kingdom, he ends up talking about revelation. And then he says this about that those comments on revelation. Um, some might protest that this is symbolic language in the most symbolic book of the Bible. And, and it's not clear, they might add, what the relation between the kingdom of Israel and the renewed earth to come. True enough. But in that same book of Revelation, it says that the renewed earth will have signs of Israel at its center. The nations will walk in it. The saints will see the Lamb face to face. There will be things to see and places to walk. It will be visible and not just invisible. Jewish, not just Gentile. It will have. It will not have boring Enlightenment-style sameness, but the beautiful divine diversity of Jews and Gentiles, Israel and the nations, men and women, all will be oriented to the Messiah, but each in ways suited to their differences. Let us think of kingdom in these ways, better informed by the Jewish character of both Testaments. Oh, I like that paragraph. That was good. And speaking of paragraphs that I like, I think I have enough time, Brent, without making this the longest episode. I'm going to read his closing few paragraphs here because I liked it. It's a good way to close our study. 
There are implications for theology. What if non-Messianic Israel is still beloved to God? How does this change our view of God's covenants? If the one that most Christians had thought was obsolete is still in force, and of the new covenant, which Christians prize? If the first covenant still prevails, how does that change our view of the covenant that Jesus inaugurates? Should we take the lead in some uh, should we take the lead of some theologians who argue that since there's no separate Hebrew word for renewed that differs from new, and since Israel's history is full of covenant renewals, that perhaps Jesus' covenant meal is another renewal for the one covenant which God made with Israel? I, I personally like that take. Uh, yeah, hello. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to his quote. There are implications for Christians' relations with their Jewish friends and neighbors. Should we Christians be surprised that our Jewish friends do not warm to hearing about Jesus when most have relatives who died in the Holocaust at the hands of people who often identified as Christians? When most Jews know that Christians killed tens, perhaps hundreds of thousands of Jews over the, te- over the centuries before the Holocaust, perhaps we Christians should try to learn the basics of that history before trying to engage with Jewish friends and neighbors in religious dialogue. Amen. Amen, Gerald. I write closing paragraph. These are hard things to think about. There are few easy answers. But most important matters like are like that. Let us not refuse to wrestle with the with these because they are difficult. We Christians should keep wrestling, especially if we discover that the particular stream of Christian tradition to which we have been raised is supersessionist. Let us continue to search the scriptures and our shared histories with fresh recognition of not only Christianity's Jewish roots, but also the Jewish character of the New Testament. By exploring the history of faith and and faith of the people whom God loves, we will learn more about God himself. And with that, we close our study, kind of led by understanding the Jewish roots of Christianity, biblical, theological, and historical essays on the relationship between Christianity and Judaism, edited by the same guy who wrote that chapter, Gerald R. McDermott. It's a great read. Uh, some some chapters more challenging than others. Yep. In in a conceptual way and in a convicting way. Yep. Uh, but. Lots of good stuff. Lots of, lots of stuff for the theology nerds. Uh, some good history for people who, who like studying history. Lots, lots and lots of good stuff. A little bit of something for everyone, I hope. Yep, absolutely. All right, well, that'll do it uh, for this episode of the BMO Podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week with Reed Dent. That'll be exciting. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> nah, Reed always does a good job. He's the team member I'm going to give the hardest time to. It's just what happens. It's my love language. Yes, yes, it's great. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, you can get a hold of Marty on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I am at EIBCB. And uh, you can you can find us all on Slack, including Reed Dent, if you want to get him hyped up for his episode next week. Uh, but you can find more details about the show at BamaDeceptionship.com. So thanks for joining us on the Bama Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Gerald, how did he say? I would say, I don't know why I just called him Gerald as if I know him. Hope he never listens Jen to Jen called him Jerry, and I'm like, wow, okay, <laughs> I guess. 
She's in that community. She can do that. She knows him. I won't. I'll stop short of Jerry. What difference does it make that Jesus and all the apostles and the New Testament itself were thoroughly Jewish? Jewish. Man. Jewish. 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 <laughs> Why do I have such a hard time saying that word? It's becoming my new word that I struggle with. 